Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our public conversations, how we might be able to communicate in a more human, emotionally intelligent and constructive way about the many things we disagree on. Every week I talk to someone who is in some way involved in public debates to learn from them, challenge them and be challenged by them, and hopefully model a better conversation. This is because I'm convinced because of my theology and what we're learning through behavioral psychology and neuroscience, that overcoming our own tendencies to tribalism and self-righteousness when we encounter people different from ourselves is really hard work. It takes concentration and self-reflection, and we hope this podcast might help with it. In this episode, I spoke to Claire Fox. Claire is the director of the Academy of Ideas, which was previously known as the Institute of Ideas. She's also a writer, broadcaster and a panellist for the BBC Radio 4 programme The Moral Maze. She's seen by many as a controversialist and libertarian, but as you'll hear, she doesn't easily fit in a box. We spoke about her Catholic school upbringing, why she thinks previous guests like Tom Chivers have given up on something essential to humanity when they give up on free will, and her pro-religion atheism. We also touch on a libel case that was brought against LM magazine when she was the editor which we haven't gone into detail about for legal reasons. When I worked with her on The Moral Maze, I always respected Claire, not because I agreed with her, but because she would never take a position she didn't believe for convenience or rhetorical effect. I really hope you enjoy listening to this conversation. Claire, thank you so much for coming to talk to me today. It's a pleasure. Now I'm going to start with our um, central question of the podcast, which is about the things that we hold sacred. And by that, we mean uh, maybe a principle that we've tried to live by or something that we would uh, defend emphatically if it was under threat. And if someone offered us money to give it up, we'd be a little bit offended by the fact that they even thought that that was a possibility. What is uh, the sacred or a sacred value for you? I think free thinking, uh, you could more broadly say freedom, but I, I really mean autonomy and the, the sort of demand that I'm allowed to think for myself I, I, and, and that everyone else is allowed to think for themselves. So it's not just for me. I think that's worth going to the wall for. Absolutely. We had a previous uh, guest on the podcast called Tom Chivers, who was formerly science correspondent at BuzzFeed, and he talked about um, the... The illusion of free will, really, and how uh, how little we are autonomous, really, how how automatic we are, and how uh, our genetics and environment and things sort of predispose us to to move in certain directions. How do you how does how do you react to that, and how does that fit with your sacred value of autonomous thinking? Actually, it's one of the reasons why one what would want to make a fuss about it at the moment because it's under assault. I mean, something which I feel has defined us um, for, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years indeed. Um, but certainly in the modern period, our understanding of the fact that we are not fated, we are not determined, was one of the great struggles of humanity to recognise that there was a space for action and thought and conscience and all sorts of things 
which meant that we weren't simply going to have to follow what the gods, and I say gods, uh, had in mind for us. We had choices. And it's interesting that it's now under assault, not from a kind of hierarchical, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, feudal system or even kind of the more authoritarian aspects of the way the church uh, in its early period had us believe, but actually now comes from the kind of very modern and fashionable science brigade um, who I feel have completely overplayed um, ge- genetic determinism, uh, neurobiology. I mean, the, the new thing is neuroscience. And of course, these are fantastically important things to understand. I mean, who doesn't want to know more about our genetics and about our, how our, our brains work and so on? But this sort of denial of humanity's capacity to make choices, I think, is is giving up on humanity. It's a real strain of um, anti-humanism that I've seen develop in a whole range of ways. And it makes us less than human. It uh, reduces us to animal status. And even worse is that kind of accusation. Ha ha, Claire, you only think that you think that. But actually, you know, this is because you've been uh, manipulated elsewhere, somewhere else. And I think it's so insulting. You know, um, it really does make us out to be um, uh, not in control of our destiny at all. And I believe that to be wrong. One of the things this podcast is trying to do is talk about our differences and the things that divide us and how we engage across those with a real eye to the personal and the emotional. And because my sense is that free thinking is very important, argument is very important, rationality is extremely important. But if we don't pay attention to those other two things as well, then we um, we slightly lose our way. So I'd love to hear a bit more about you, Claire, as a, as a, as a person about, let's start perhaps with where and how you grew up and particularly the kind of religious or political or philosophical background there. What, what values were in the air? Well, one of the things that I can absolutely um, give credit to a Catholic comprehensive school um, for doing is actually, and this isn't, again, anti-fashionable today, um, it was actually for making me think um, independently because there's a really interesting aspect of, of, of say, for example, uh, thinking about big moral questions, which we often did in, you know, RE lessons or what have you. Uh, RE lessons at that stage were not examinations that you had to tick boxes to pass, but were opportunities to reflect on the big religious questions. And obviously it was a Catholic school. They were asking us to think about things that often went against the grain of the orthodoxies of the time, whether it was, um, whether the fetus was a human being or not in relation to abortion. Uh, Sometimes uh, some quite unpalatable things, you know, transubstantiation. Uh, um, never mind, you know, the, the, the Holy Ghost and the Trinity. I mean, these were kind of big issues. But in all seriousness, um, it made my brain hurt after going through, thinking through those things. And often we were posed with moral dilemmas. You know, what would you do? Um, and consequently, I started to realise that there wasn't just one way of thinking about things. It's interesting because today the argument goes that if you go to a religious school, you're kind of brainwashed into one way of thinking. Actually, that's not true at all. Um, You're actually asked to consider that there are a variety of ways of approaching the same empirical, um, uh, factual uh, event. And so I think that I can give full credit to that experience for making me start to question things. Now, as it happens, it it led me to question Catholicism. So it's not as though it was something that kind of led you down one path entirely. Um, That's one one aspect of things. Uh, The other thing was, was that because I was from an 
Irish Catholic backgrounds and therefore, um, you know, we were kind of uh, an immigrant community, if you want. We had a sort of sense of being a minority and, you know, I was beaten up once for being a, a, a Fenian uh, by the kind of local proddy kids. I mean, you know, it was a kind of gang warfare of a very minor level, I hasten to add. But, you know, I became conscious of that. I got very interested in Irish politics because it was all to do with the war in Ireland. So I started to get interested in current affairs and I uh, credit my parents for um, who who weren't educated in a formal sense, but were avid followers of current affairs. And um, the the paper that we used to read was the Express, which in those days was a very respectable paper to read. And my my mother and father would read the newspaper and listen to the radio all the time and talk and argue all the time about current affairs and politics. So all three of us, all three um, sisters. Um, uh, were brought up again to think about what's going on in the world and what we thought about it. So obviously they had a view of what we should think about it, but actually it was always very much something that was like, what would you think about um, what happens at Bloody Sunday? But what would you think about um, uh, the trade union movement? What would you think about uh, Britain's relationship with uh, uh, the colonies? Uh, but it might also just be, you know, uh, you know, who would you vote for in an election? And so we were always talking about those kind of things. Yeah, so that gave me an approach to politics um, or ideas, which I hope I retained, which was to recognise that there were contested areas. There wasn't just one answer. It wasn't simple. And, and then I suppose the final kind of big growing up experience for me was that I I went to Teze, which was a, a, a religious community in France. Um, I actually won a place there via being a girl guide. I mean, it's a coincidence that it ended up being a religious place that had a huge impact on me. And the reason it had a huge impact on me was because I was from a very small place in North Wales and... I'd never met people from around the world. And this was this international youth camp in which we were all encouraged to sit around and talk about ideas the whole time. And I met extraordinary people who were involved in, at the time, actively involved in fighting apartheid, uh, often actually from religious orders. Um, sometimes, you know, people who, you know, I, I met, If I'd, this is a kind of historical memory of uh, people who all wore orange. There was a phase of this. They all seemed to be Dutch and they all wore orange and it had something to do with Indian mysticism. So who knows? But the point was, I suddenly was confronted with a wide range of things and I was 16, 17 initially and I carried on going back there until my uh, mid-twenties because I found that it always challenged me. So I've never been frightened of being challenged. I've resisted it stubbornly like everybody but I've always learned a lot from listening to other people and so I hope that that continues today. I'll come back to the the politics question, but I'm just going to go a little bit deeper with the the religion angle. You say that it caused you to question Catholicism and you spent a lot of time in Teze right up until your mid-twenties. How would you describe yourself now? Oh, well, you know, now I am a, a well-known secularist. I am a cultural Catholic, but I um, I don't consider myself to be religious. But I, you know, I have a great deal of respect for religion and um, religious tradition, all religious tradition as it happens. I I think I understand it. I also um, believe in transcendence and there's aspects of religious thought that are very appealing to me and that I think are very important in this kind of way that I've um, indicated. I think that we're reducing humans to like an animal species that are incapable of going beyond themselves. Um, and I think that's hugely important. Also, when I was at Teze, one of the points about being at Teze was that I I learned how to 
be quiet. This might be quite a shock to listeners who may associate we, me with never shutting up and never knowingly being off the radio or doing podcasts. And I do a lot of public speaking and so on. But actually that capacity to sit quietly and contemplate, I mean, you know, otherwise known as prayer. But Teze had a, a tradition of, of, of where you'd sit silently and beautiful music and so on and so forth. And so I, I th- and actually I even went, I'd even forgotten this point, but I even went and spent a whole summer there in silence. In, in, they, they encouraged people to do that. So I spent a month in silence. That was tough. Um, but I, ha- I had a real set of dilemmas I was trying to confront at the time. And it was exhilaratingly important to have done that um, because I had to think and I didn't always like doing that. Now this is even more personal and distinctly un-British but as someone who sounds so warm towards religious tradition and ideas what is the thing that keeps you uh, non-religious? Lack of faith. In God? Yeah. That's a very straightforward one. Yeah. And uh, I have a kind of half-baked theory that atheists or even agnostics of the world fall into the category of those who would really like God to exist, but don't think that he or she does. Um, And those that actively hope that he or she doesn't because it is a threat to their autonomy or um, for a whole range of reasons. Where would you put yourself? I I, I just, you see, I I don't um, contemplate at that level now. And so I, I think it would just be disingenuous to choose a hat. Although, in fact, interestingly, a number of people have raised this with me, not not, not about me, but raised this issue because I think it is true that people uh, kind of think, you know, I don't know whether I want God to exist or not. I understand that point. But uh, no, I mean, look, I, I religion now is important to me to defend against a huge range of attacks. I, I believe in religious tolerance and religious freedom, t- you know, to my core. And I have found a huge degree of illiberalism when it comes to religion. So my main uh, um, relationship with religion is in a political sphere. The other, the, the other aspect of, of, of religion that I relate very strongly to is my um, mother is has is it in her 90s has alzheimer's and dementia in fact and i go to mass with her and the catholic community and the support she has had means that i and indeed you know many years ago my father died when i was when he was young um you could see what that meant as a community when it's at its best. I've seen the worst aspects of when it doesn't work. But when you have a parish, when your relationships with people are based on more than friendship, but on a sense of community, that is a very rich uh, aspect of society which is missing in so many people's lives. And I have a huge degree of respect for it. And we are losing it at great cost in society. office with Ben Ryan. We have been on a few days away with the Theos team uh, reflecting on lots of different things, but spending quite a lot of time thinking about tribalism and our own um, uh, groups that we feel affinity with and groups that we might feel less affinity with and the kind of things that we talk about on the podcast about emotional intelligence and dealing with hostility and communicating across difference. And one of the things that was really helpful was reflecting on some recent research in the area. Ben's been reading about it. What have you found? 
Uh, well, the book which I think I've been finding particularly interesting on this is, is Amy Chua, who's uh, uh, at Yale. She's a political scientist there, um, and it's called Political Tribes. And I think it's a very it's a very compelling book. It, it's trying to diagnose basically the state of America as it is today. And she's thinking particularly in, in an American context, though much of what it says you could transfer into lots of other contexts as well. Um, and one of the kind of major themes of it is that um, essentially America has been really bad at thinking about tribal identity, uh, and that this is consistently actually undermined both its foreign policy and its domestic policies. She goes through how the war in Vietnam and Iraq, both of them um, not necessarily could have been done better, but certainly could have been thought about very differently if they'd thought in terms of how people's, how deep-seated people's identities really are. And she's then applying that in a domestic context and, and particularly kind of in, in the wake of Trump, thinking about um, different tribes, left and right, uh, and different races uh, and how they're interacting or, or rather not interacting. Uh, I think m- much of diagnosis, I, I find, it is quite is quite compelling. It certainly lays out a pretty bleak picture of, of kind of American society. It's not a book which will make you feel terribly happy, um, I don't think. Uh, I mean, uh, there's a few really interesting ideas in there, but one of the ones which I, two which kind of really stood out for me, one is about group inequality. This has been a huge kind of focus on inequality as a theme. Um, but one of her points is that when you see kind of people who, who write about types of inequality who are criticised for being, well, actually, no, you personally are not poor or you personally are not that oppressed. Uh, and one of her point is, and Donald Trump is a classic example, how can you speak for kind of downtrodden white America when you are not downtrodden by anyone, you're an immensely rich man who's lived your entire life in a penthouse? Uh, and her argument is, well, actually, it's about group inequality. It's about actually, of course, it's the most eloquent, best off, best educated people from these backgrounds who are the kind of leaders of it. Uh, and in extreme world, you could even think about someone like Osama bin Laden in that case. But the point is the group that they're from is systematically struggling for equality and that's where you get the leaders from. I think we've seen this recently um, with the Afwa Hirsch's new book um, about race and Britishness uh, which I confess I have not got to read yet and therefore I'm trying to reserve judgment on. There's certainly been quite a lot of hostile reviews of it but I was slightly troubled to see that many of the attacks on the book were from the perspective of how dare you talk about race you went to private school which does seem to me to be slightly beside the point. I think this is exactly it. And, and that's so often the case. And you, you see it with politicians as well as it's the sort of accusation which gets thrown at people like um, like David Lammy and, and Diane Abbott, particularly, you know, actually, you've had a reasonably, uh, if not elite, at least kind of comfortable background. And um, what right do you have to kind of speak as, as an oppressed black person? The answer is, well, it's only ever going to be the people who kind of succeed slightly out of the system who are going to be in any position to be on a kind of soapbox and talk about it. But actually, the community that they're representing, the constituency behind them, um, uh, is deeply struggling with inequality and is deeply tribal. And actually, just because you're at the kind of lucky end of any particular group in no way stops you from being the kind of spokesperson for that. And what was the second idea? Second idea and is linked, actually, is that uh, her argument, of, in a sense, for why things have got worse, is that there's been an end to group transcending ideals. Um, and she blames this on left and right. And so for her, the left in America, and I think this is a little bit of a caricature, but people will recognise something in it, um, has become obsessed with identities which are no longer about inclusion in terms of kind of the civil rights struggle of the 60s, which is about uh, almost making people group and identity blind. And instead is all about the opposite of that. Group blindness is now a sin. And actually, it's all about intersectionality. And uh, you can't simply talk about women or, or, or black issues. You have to talk about everything. Uh, and she does the same for the right, as the right too has lost sight of any idea which goes beyond its own group and is now obsessed with the declining status of the white community, basically. 
The thing that really stuck with me when you were talking uh, about the book on the away day was um, the depth of our own unconscious tribalism. And we've been seeing this come through, you know, for a few years now, ideas coming out, people like Jonathan Haidt and Joshua Green's book, Moral Tribes. Um, I think it's very easy when we talk about tribalism to use it as a way of diagnosing other people's tribalism. Um, But one of the things we've been trying to reflect on internally is our own tendencies towards that and how we are more aware of and, and manage those. So would you just mention maybe in very top line terms, a couple of the studies that really stuck out at you to demonstrate? That. I think the one which has been particularly interesting for us is a study which shows that um, the more numerous and educated you are, the worse you are at changing your mind on issues, that actually the kind of maximally tribal you are. So they, they did a study which uh, was asking people using a kind of a completely fake data um, to analyse whether a particular product made something better or worse. And the same data they asked people whether they thought that a particular law would make gun crime go up or down. And basically what they found was that there was enormous bias in how people responded to that. The people who were liberal and anti-gun tended to think uh, that it caused gun crime to go up and the opposite for the other group. And the interesting thing was that the more numerate you were and the better educated you were, the more able you were able to twist this data around to your point of view. So that almost nothing could disprove the position which you'd already uh, consented to. And I think for us as an organisation, which has been working with kind of educated people and trying to kind of convince people who are clever and numerous and all the rest of it, but they need to think differently about things. That's quite a challenge because then you've, you, you're faced not only with the burden of getting your argument across, but actually getting someone um, to challenge their own preconceptions, which they're very good at holding on to. Uh, and the other one, which I thought was very interesting, was about uh, conformity. Um, so they asked people, a series of people were testing wine uh, and they were told that everyone else in the group they were testing with was a brilliant wine taster and their credentials were really bumped up. Uh, they went into a booth with a machine and they had to judge two wines, which were actually exactly the same. They came out of the same bottle and they saw the first four people vote and they all said that the wine, one wine was great and one was terrible. Uh, and about 50% of people in that position go with the crowd, even though they knew it was wrong, even though they knew it was the same. And we know they knew it was the same because the second part of the test was they then had to judge the accuracy of the other people who'd picked. Uh, And when they were asked publicly, they went still with the crowd. Uh, But the sixth voter, the one who voted after them, voted correctly. And when asked to vote privately, most people selected that one. So they knew, therefore, that that was the correct opinion, but they still marked that person down in a public uh, setting because that was the kind of limits of conformity that had been put on them. Uh, We will continue to reflect on that internally, about how influenced we are by our peers and our our kind of social setting and also um, how bad we are at changing our minds and uh, hopefully help each other improve. Thank you, Ben. return your uh, so you had a it sounds like politics was around the edges of your child and certainly debate about politics but did it feel like there was a um, place on the political spectrum where your parents sat most naturally no I mean my my, you know, my dad was a kind of working class Tory um, my mother was Labour Party uh, voter you know so in that sense debate was well and truly active um, and my dad wasn't really you know, I, I don't know how I, 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 he was the most unlikely conservative in, in one traditional sense, although maybe like a lot of working class conservatives in a way, um, a bit of the kind of self-made man. And, and also because he, he felt very bitter about a lot of things about the trade union movement, because, you know, when you were kind of Irish at that time, you, you weren't, if you didn't fit into certain jobs, you were kind of kept out. He had to kind of make it himself. So he kind of was cynical about those kind of collectivist attitudes. Um, so I, I was, and I, 
I, I would have been naturally Labour. It was a big Labour area. Everybody voted Labour, <laughs> my dad and a few exceptions, um, and continue to do so, in fact. But I went to a meeting when I was about 15, 16, um, yeah, in my sixth form, where the local MP, I'd never heard an MP speak, and it was about closing down the steelworks, Shot and Steelworks. And my all my friends left school to go and work in Shot and Steelworks, and I was kind of bullshy and mathy even then. And I said, will you promise you won't close down these steelworks? And he said, I promise. And of course, they closed down the steelworks and I never forgot it. So in fact, I became very disillusioned with the Labour Party very quickly. And when I went to university, um, I was it was extraordinary times because, you know, at the union general meeting at Warwick University, every week there was a thousand people attending at least. And I would sit at the back in my first year and watch this extraordinary array of different people arguing and think, I don't know where I fit in. And I went to practically every political party's meetings and kind of tried them out. So in that sense, I was completely, I was aware of the fact that I wanted to do something about injustice in the world, things I was annoyed and angry about, but I had no natural home. And so it took me some time to kind of settle on one and uh, even even to ask whether I'm settled now, but you know. Well, I was, as I was sort of thinking and reading about talking to you, what, what comes out is you confuse people. <laughs> your, your, your political journey and the positions that you take on things don't fit in kind of hermetically sealed boxes. But for those who don't know, explain a little bit about um, your background with, with living Marxism and where that the trajectory towards your work now with the Institute of Ideas. Yeah, so I, I, I eventually settled at university on getting involved in uh, a Trotskyist organisation called the Revolutionary Communist Party quite a small organisation, which I was in for many years and which one of the things which appealed to me about it was that it it uh, acknowledged the importance of reading and thought and discussion and, you know, all of the things that I so value now. And and I just politically became more convinced that uh, uh, kind of that Marxism had a huge amount to offer. And by the way, that was partly influenced by liberation theology that come out of Catholicism and some of the people I met in Teze. So, you know, if you want the kind of crossover, you could see how that would happen. Anyway, that's, that's kind of where I ended up. And eventually, um, having... Um, done that at the at the very end of the Revolutionary Communist Party's existence, it had a magazine called Living Marxism. The Revolutionary Communist Party folded, and there was this really good uh, current affairs magazine. That actually had a really quite a healthy readership. Had a bit of uh, you know a few hundred pounds in the bank, nothing much, but you know bit. And myself and a colleague, um, I had just taken a year out sabbatical from teaching to start a PhD, which very quickly I realised that academic scholarship was not my thing um, and I decided with this colleague that we would preposterously relaunch Living Marxism as LM magazine. We weren't trying to pretend it wasn't connected to Living Marxism which is why it was LM but we were also saying it was a new magazine and that's what we did and unfortunately in the first issue we got sued for libel by none other than ITN, one of the largest news organisations in the world. Uh, that's really quite a spectacular entry onto the stage. Indeed. Um, so there we were, a slightly obscure current affairs magazine, and its thesis was free speech, and we were sued for libel, and we refused to um, destroy all the magazines and apologise as we were demanded, and because we felt that we were right. And I, I, the the libel case uh, went on for three years. Um, the 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 particulars of it are in the historic record, and uh, we won't discuss because we don't want to repeat the libel. Uh, we lost the libel case, um, although it is worth noting that the judge noted that we were fact factually accurate throughout. Um, so we, we lost the libel case and went bankrupt three years later. Um, 
the reason why I, I said the factual accuracy was we didn't lose our reputation. I mean, some people, of course, yes, but many people in the course of that three years of arguing to defend a small independent magazine from a libel case came to know about um, LM Magazine. I was forced into the public sphere in a way that I would never have been to go out and, you know, have free speech petitions and raise lots of money to fight the case and all of these different things. And one of the things that we did during that three years was LM magazine organised big public debates and festivals and discussions. That was the aspect of the publishing that I liked. They were a sellout. We organised a summer of debates uh, called the Institute of Ideas. The Institute of Ideas Summer of Debates, which was working in association with the Royal Shakespeare Company, the RSA, the British Library, the Royal Institution, all these organisations and more actually, that had had recognised that we were doing something in the field of public engagement that no one else was doing, came to us and said, can we work with you? And we literally couldn't work with them all. So we said, oh, we'll do this big month and we'll do it in July. We lost the libel case in March. Um, so we were you we were left without a magazine or an institution or an organisation, but with a summer of debates called the Institute of Ideas. And it was our last hurrah. I mean, we were bankrupt. So myself and one other person, just um, because we had a, a separate uh, company running that summer of events, um, ran it and it was a sellout and then somebody said oh, why are you stopping and um, why don't you become the institute of ideas which was a preposterous thought um, and the rest as i say is history uh, just join the dots for me because i think that for some of our listeners the idea of communism and free speech going hand in hand is a bit counterintuitive so is it that as you moved as the, you know, the, 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 that allegiance to the, that particular bit of communist thought or Trotskyist thought, uh, free speech became more important to you or had it been important all along? And that's a misunderstanding. It's a misunderstanding. I mean, well, it's a misunderstanding of, of the history of, of, um, of communism, but I understand why it's misunderstood. I mean, um, the, 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 the residue of communism that emerged in terms of the, um, the Cold War, the Stalinist countries, the absolute both barbarity on the one hand, the total disregard for freedom on the other, were obviously, you know, I think a perversion of what was a very different kind of tradition. And it's interesting because, um, you know, if you read some of the theories and philosophy around Marxist thought, it's all premised on enlightenment, commitment to freedom. That's what the whole point is, right? It's about liberating people. Think of the phrase even. It's about liberating people from orthodoxies and also from some of the things which hold back their capacity to be human and autonomous. So, you know, the fact that it ended up in Stalinist you know, Soviet Union is just too depressing for words. And with a whole kind of empire of people oppressed, um, you know, like Hungarians and Polish people who have rightly wanted to overthrow that. And so did I. So, you know, when I say I was from a Trotskyist party, that's a way of distinguishing not, you know, he was killed by the Stalinists for indeed, you know, speaking out about what they were doing. So there's a miss. But, you know, that's a kind of like, you know, the danger with that is it's sort of some seminar from university politics, uh, you know, year two or something. And I and I and I know that it feels relevant to people but just in terms of my own position you know one of the things if we're doing this um historical point you know i when i was in my first year at university i was an active um supporter of um pro-life position and i i was asked to do a debate by the life organization on abortion and you know I was naive, so I didn't realize that, you know, doing a debate for life at Warwick University, which was 
absolutely drowning in kind of feminist groups and the left and so on and so forth was going to get me a certain notoriety. I kind of did it in good faith. It was a sellout debate and we won the debate. And we won the debate against all the odds and the, you know, to a certain extent, a lot of people involved in left-wing policies never quite forgave me. And I was given... I mean, you know, I, I was given some credit for having won that debate. Um, and so, uh, but there was attempts to close down that debate. Yeah. So I, and, you know, we're all familiar with this now. I mean, people tried to stop the debate. I couldn't, I genuinely couldn't understand it. You know, I, yeah. what, what on earth would that happen? As I then got involved in left-wing politics and revolutionary politics later on, um, there was various attempts at no, and, and in, in fact involved in the Revolutionary Communist Party. Um, and and I changed my position in relation to abortion as well. Um, I always defended um, people who were the student union tried to know platform who were actually, interestingly enough, often anti-abortionists and, um, you know, who were described as far right fascists and anti-women. And I said, let them speak. You know, I spoke. Uh, I won a debate, but I've been convinced to another position. I mean, what are we all frightened of? Right. Let's hear the arguments. Let's have the arguments out. Um, it doesn't mean that that argument is the last word. So what I'm trying to say is, is that I think it's a caricature to assume that people who are involved in, uh, you know, far left politics are anti-freedom. Sadly, in 2018, so many of the assaults on free speech are coming from the left and that's a great sadness on my part. As I was reading around about the work that you do, I found you and your work described in various places as far left, far right, um, neoliberal, uh, communist. The, the, the mixture of signifiers that people attach to you is more diverse than I think I've ever seen with any other individual. How would you describe where you sit, where you sit now? Well, I, I, it's, it is difficult because I do think that the terms left and right have become increasingly unhelpful. I think that things have changed enormously in the way, and in fact, I think it's time to move on. I mean, you know, there are different political periods in which for a whole, you know, 100 years or so, being left or right meant something. And we all understood, you know, a couple of hundred years um, uh, post the French Revolution and that revolutionary period. But it doesn't mean the same anymore. I mean, you know, you'd be hard pressed to say what is a left wing or a right wing position. And, you know, you can be accused of being right wing because you're pro free speech. I mean, how did that happen? I, uh, you know, if you say that you support high standards in education, people say, oh, you just sound like the Daily Mail now. You're a right winger. I mean, what? I mean, the left have kind of vacated the space on a lot of very positive, radical ideas, in my opinion. But it's also true that um, that doesn't mean I feel as though I've moved to the right or whatever that would mean anyway. And it, there are lots of aspects of traditional conservative thought which I don't support. So I've given up trying to decide. I've said, you know, take me at my word and decide yourself. I mean, it doesn't matter. I'm described as a left-wing libertarian. I know that the libertarian bit is meant to be an insult. I don't, I don't take it as an insult, but I think that there's a, in a very strict meaning of libertarianism, if people interpret that as meaning that you think that the state should, for, for example, not provide schools, I'd say don't be ridiculous. Of course they should. So, you know, it's very difficult in that situation to, to find the labels useful. Lots of the people we've spoken to on the podcast I am interested in because they do that exact thing of having travelled between tribes or sit on the boundaries of different tribes. Sometimes they're translating between tribes. Um, what have you learnt about how... And again, the language is difficult, but the right and the left talk to each other. Or perhaps if you have alternative terminology, I'd love to hear what you would yeah. suggest. Yeah, well, I, no, I think I think this is like one of the key questions of the day, isn't it? I, I When we started organising the Battle of Ideas Festival, 
um, which was the big festival that we organise at the Barbican every October and which indeed you've spoken at. But when we started, which was kind of very small and modest and has kind of gradually grown up to be something of a, a, a very successful festival. We, before it became fashionable, were talking about getting out of um, uh, the echo chamber. You know, the, the point that we were trying to make was that it was important to bring people of all political views and none together and not to sort of, and I didn't mean by that, oh, we have to have, you know, Tories or Labour and Lib Dem. I mean, a kind of box ticking, have we got balance? So I meant to just say to anyone, are you interested in discussing these ideas beyond the headlines and the soundbite? And we found that there was a real appetite for that and people were, were genuinely open to it. And in recent times, um, I was very proud that that two years ago, the Battle of Ideas Festival after the EU referendum vote had both Brexit voters and Remain voters at the same event who had never met each other. I mean, I don't mean they as individuals, obviously. And, and, you know, those kind of tribes that had kind of built up caricatured views of each other post-Brexit winning were able to see and hear and debate completely openly um, in, in a way that people sort of say is not possible. And I... I I've become increasingly concerned about echo chambers um, that have become solidified. And in a way, people now don't even feel the need to have to engage with someone of the opposition, uh, whatever that opposition might be, by the way, uh, because they've already decided that they're a write-off. You know, they've already decided that they're a racist, xenophobe, you don't have to bother to talk to. Uh, why would you take their views uh, 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 seriously? I think there's been a very unhelpful reaction, in fact, to Brexit from... Uh, the establishment figures who lost, um, who have irresponsibly whipped up the kind of uh, Remain fundamentalist approach. Now, many people I know voted Remain and they are equally as fed up with those people who constantly behave as though, um, you know, uh, everybody who voted Brexit was a was a, a deplorable, you know, low information, uh, 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 ignorant, manipulated, duped person um, and, and kind of want us to get on with it. Now, you know, it was a vote. We all voted in good faith. That's what happened. So I, I, I'm, I'm distressed by what's subsequently that kind of solidifying of people yeah. looking at each the other. The caricature works both ways, doesn't it? The, it it the, definitely does. The, the word so. traitor gets bandied around far too much. But I do think it is important to note that that it has become a very defensive way of dealing with things. And, it, you know, I don't want to let anyone, I, I wouldn't bother using the word, I mean, I think that one could avoid uh, stirring the pot and I and I certainly think there's a feeding frenzy. But I think it's important to understand what happened though, which was that, that an unlikely majority won and that they were absolutely castigated as though they didn't know what they were doing. And what has happened is that's created a lot more tension. I'm also suggesting that many people who voted Remain would have accepted it. Many more people would have done had it not been constantly being fueled. And I and I think that's very dangerous. So that's one thing. But it's not, I mean, obviously that's that's one of the big questions of our time, but it's not the only one. Well, let's un- just unpack it a little bit because I do think it is a totemic issue that is fueling our anxiety about how divided we are. I'd love to kind of hear how you reflect on your your own role in this, because you're someone who I think of as being quite comfortable with a bit of a ding dong. You know, you like a good argument. It's why you make a great person in the moral maze. Um, and actually, because you're a powerful debater, quite often in, in a debate, what you're looking for is to win. How often do you think to yourself, actually, I'm not going to use that point because it's divisive or I'm going to resist that caricature? Or how do you tread the line between convincingly making your case and adding fuel to the tribal fire? 
Well, the thing is, is that I, I think it's about whether you think the debate is with the other person you're debating. And it might sound silly, but I don't think of it like that. I think of it as trying to convince an audience, which is different. So I'm not really interested in kind of... Um, that might sound harsh, but the people that I'm debating, I think that you can end up kind of sounding like some clever rhetorical debate person if you do that. Whereas I actually believe what I'm saying. So I'm not playing a game. I believe in what I'm arguing for. And I am trying to convince other people that I'm right. Not because I'm right, but because I think it's the right moral, philosophical you know, value-laden position to take. Um, if I, if I, if, uh, you know, and no doubt, and we all use cheap tricks, and I'm, I'm, I don't mean that I've never resorted to them, but that's not my intention. So just to use a, a non-Brexit example, if I'm having an argument about um, assisted suicide, which I feel very strongly about and which I'm opposed to, you know, it's not a question of saying everybody supports assisted suicide kind of like is want to kill people off or is anti-human. But I do want to convince people, especially because I feel as though it's increasingly, you know, become popular to, to see those people who are opposed to assisted suicide as being cruel um, and denying people the right to kill, you know, to end their suffering. I think it's very important to bring to life and convince people of why, as a society, we should not, we should do everything possible to keep people alive and to affirm them while they're alive rather than saying, yes, your time has come, <laughs> you know, um, you're, well, you want it to come, so yes, goodbye, and, and so on and so forth. So that's a very passionate argument. And I understand that in the course of that argument, people will carry each other. What I think is illegitimate is when people sort of say, oh, you're only saying that because you've been, you know, you're in the captured by the religious lobby or they can't say that to me so much but they'll say the problem with this argument is, is the religious people. And it's like, no, take the arguments up. Don't try and caricature people. And the, another kind of irritating thing that happens um, is that people assume that you believe something because, I don't know, because you... you you know, you've been bought off. You know, you've got, where did you, did somebody pay you? And I, I say this because we're, we're an organisation that needs to raise sponsorship. And people will say, oh, well, you, you're just saying that because you got sponsorship from somebody. And it's like, n nobody ever uh, believes anymore that people believe things for the sake of it. So, although I, 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 so when you say, how do I avoid it? I just try not to do it. I don't mean I never do it. But if you're arguing in good faith, I think yeah. that's helpful. I think like the good faith bit is important and actually what we see in our public debates is a, a complete failure to you know assume good faith on the part of the other. I do worry that in our passionate desire to win an argument on something as as kind of important as assisted dying or on abortion or on Brexit, um our desire to convince people who might be wavering by its nature hardens those who are on the other side because we are um uh, triggering in them defensiveness by going on, you know, th there is a very human thing that happens when we disagree with people that I think, you know, we get a release of cortisol, we get kicked into fight or flight. Um, and one of the things I'm trying to do when I'm dis discussing things across difference is really carefully manage that. And as far as possible, not trigger the threat reaction in the person that I'm talking to. For, because once you're in a threat reaction, you can't process information rationally. So I don't have a hope of changing their mind. And the only way I know how to do that is by building empathy, by building connection, by keeping us both in our rational brains, <laughs> by keeping us seeing each other as um, uh, not not the enemy, not, you know, in sort of evolutionary terms, a saber-toothed tiger hunting us down, but as someone who we can have a productive, rational discussion. But as soon as you amp up into that much more rhetorical debating society style, it's very difficult 
to stay in anything other than a defensive posture. But it's interesting because if you take something like Brexit, the the the, the irony of that was that that in a, a, an attempt at persuading people to vote to leave the EU, which I was trying to do, um, actually there wasn't that kind of defensive posture on the other side because most of the people who were arguing to stay in the EU actually refused to debate. I mean, there was no debate. I mean, what did they say? They they, they used fear and threats, and these are well known. Um, and so. I went on, in fact, Radio 4 on the Saturday before the vote um, after Joe Cox had been tragically murdered and they'd replaced the any questions with a studio discussion in which it was inferred that the murder of that MP was directly linked to those of us who were arguing to leave the EU. Now, you know, that was the kind of argument that I'd had to endure for some time. Now, I, interestingly, um, in terms of the arguments for leaving the EU, they were about the EU and not about every other. And, you know, because if you're accused of whipping up chauvinism and all the rest of it, when actually you're saying, no, we, we want to talk about what the EU represents and all the things it represents. So the interesting thing about the tribal aspect of this debate is it actually took off after the vote. So when people say to me, you know, you've got to stop, and it's like, I don't feel the need to have to persuade everybody now of why we should leave the EU. So I don't want to rerun this referendum every time I go out. The, the, what happened was, was that we went and voted. A lot of people now say, I, I hadn't realised how important it was to me that we're leaving the EU until we left, and now I'm passionate about it. Well, I'm sorry, but that was the odds, right? You People were asked something, and you needed to have got passionate about it before. There's no point taking it out on me because that democratic vote was lost. So my fear is, is that this is perpetual, because if you're going to carry on having made the decision to carry on rehearsing it over and over and over again, I'm afraid that does put people into defensive corners and it's why I wish people would stop now. Do you um I'd love to hear a bit about the kind of your emotional interaction with that. We had David Goodhart on the podcast recently who um is someone who doesn't naturally perhaps think in emotional terms but said something very telling about how when he changed his mind on on immigration um it it was quite tricky that old friends and allies essentially started assuming he was a racist and even his children um, thought he was a racist. And there was just a moment there where you could see the kind of the vulnerability of that. Do you, do you, are you someone who feels the criticism and the assumptions or have you developed strategies or do you just like the kind of to and fro? No, I mean, uh, well, what's happened around Brexit has been the most extraordinary political experience to live through if you are somebody on the left who argued for Brexit. And you don't even have to have been on the left. I mean, people I... I mean, you know, you can say that it's not very nice being called a traitor, right? If you're called a stupid, xenophobic racist who wanted, you know, people to be killed on the streets, like an MP like Joe Cox, and this is a consistent message that comes out, that you're uh, encouraging uh, the the, the uh, anti-foreigner uh, attitudes, some of the things which I fought all my life as an anti-racist against. It's, to say it's galling, it's not an argument, is it? It's just a set of uh, abuse, right? A series of abusive statements. So I can understand why David's got emotional about it because um, it, it, it's, it's been galling to say the least and it is true that it's created some real tensions and really unpleasant atmosphere and you know you can point out things like you know a third of ethnic minorities in this country voted Brexit 
people say. They just ignore it, right? It's like you're not allowed to say that. This is a kind of, you know, inconvenient fact that comes up. In other words, it's just not as simple as that. Now, I do not think that everybody who voted Remain in the referendum is part of some metropolitan elite traitor class, right? I mean, you know, that's the thing. I never thought that, don't think that. I think that sometimes people uh, voted to uh, Remain in an association with the EU with being open-minded and anti-racist and maybe that was not as uh, given as much thought before the vote as now people maybe realise they should have given it. In other words, they just assumed it was the right side. And that's not enough for an argument either. You have to you have to think about it. And if you were thinking about voting Brexit, you really had to think about it because you were in the you were absolutely like against the grain. So I I, I feel as though the the other uh, positive emotional side was that, you know, people who had never been involved in politics got motivated around the, the, the referendum. They were told that their vote was necessary, that it was the first time their vote would count. Uh, David Cameron and uh, George Osborne did actually a good job of mobilising people. I mean, they were the big, the initial worry when they called the referendum was that nobody would vote, that everyone would be so bored of it by the time we got to it, that it'd be like a low turnout and not really resolve it. What happens instead was that you couldn't go anywhere, uh, you know, mass uh, in, in, in North Wales. People were talking about what way they were going to vote. People were arguing um, at, at the, the school gates, on the buses, in the cafes, in the uh, workplaces and so on, what way they were going to vote. People took it very seriously. They were mobilised in their millions and millions and millions and people went out and voted and people who were told that they would have jeopardised their jobs, lose everything so on, by everybody in the establishment, you know, 90% of the establishment, won very unlikely scenario and it was a, a, a fantastic victory for an anti-establishment uh, sentiment and it was very moving to see people who'd never spoken in public before but who'd gone out and tried to convince people to vote Brexit winning when they never expected to there were some wonderful you know examples of uh, of, of people who became politicised in that way that I think we should be celebrating um, absolutely celebrating instead of then turning on them and saying oh well that was because you were too stupid to know what you were doing so given that um well, question one is how optimistic or pessimistic are you about our public conversations, given that you've painted a picture of a slightly more positive um, set of positive outcomes from the referendum? And uh, whether you are optimistic or pessimistic, how could we improve the ways we engage with people that we disagree with? Well, something we haven't discussed, which is probably the greatest challenge to your idea of tribes, is identity politics. And I think that this has become a, a real tyranny and a real threat to those of us who believe in, in kind of open dialogue and free thinking. You know, the problem with identity politics is, is that it boxes you off into um, segregated uh, 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 areas where it's almost as though the conversation becomes impossible because it's all based apparently on, you know, having a unique experience based on your identity. And therefore, of course, nobody can... And, you know, it's like sort of you can't speak on this because you've never experienced it. And I I'm um, I've seen the effect of that on young people in particular. You know, I wrote a book. Um, I find that offensive uh, last year, which was all about the impact of these kind of politics on 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 um, students and free speech and so on. And it's become intensified subsequently. You know, whereas I took some heart from uh, uh, um, Martin Luther King's, uh, you know, I had a dream speech as did hold swathes of people over the years who asked us to uh, aim for a society in which we judge people by the, 
their character and you know what's in their heart and not the colour of their skin now I'm told that I have to note the colour of the skin before all else I mean the racialising of politics around identity and race is frightening to me the fact that um, people will say I find that offensive but if you say as a Muslim I find that offensive you know as a Muslim woman I find that offensive even you know more likely you can silence someone you know as a as a, as a Muslim transgender model you know that's unlikely but um, I find this offensive and so on and so forth I mean people start to accrue their identities as victim points which are used to silence somebody else. They're not, they're not just descriptors. And I think that also explains why if identity becomes the defining feature of um, your political engagement, why, of course, um, people take things so personally? Because then you're not having an objective discussion about something. If you criticise, for example, the contemporary uh, uh, gender uh, 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 politics around trans, uh, trans issues, which you know, is kind of so dominant today. People sort of say, oh, so you you actually want to, you know, kill all trans people, you know, or you, you hate me or, you know, no, I'm not saying that. I'm making an observation about a political point. If you argue that, for example, you think that um, we should not lower the bar of evidence when it comes to sexual assault because it's very important to hold on to the rule of law, people th- say, well, I was raped and you're saying that my rapist should get away with it. No, I'm not saying that. I'm trying to make an objective point about the rule of law. And so there's this sort of way in which people have internalised identity and politics that almost makes it impossible to have a conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Sacred. We'd really love to know what you think. You can get in touch via Twitter, which is at sacred underscore podcast or email us at thesacredpodcast at gmail.com. We'd also love to ask a favour. If you're enjoying the series and you think it's important that we have big questions about difference, we'd love to enlist your help to spread the word. Please think about posting a review or rating us on iTunes or any other of your favourite podcast providers. Share on social media and tell your friends. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos or come to one of our Central London events, you can connect via our website at theosthinktank.co.uk.